We're in Revelation chapter 4, and reading verses 1 through 11, uh, the, the entirety of the chapter. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. Let's give our attentive hearing to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven which one se- with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would speak. Uh, You will speak into our hearts. You will speak your words of grace that give birth to faith. Uh, Help us to listen attentively uh, wherever we might be coming from as those who have known you, as those who have never known you, uh, those who are seeking you, uh, those who have found you and are deepening that, that founding. Wherever we may be coming from, we ask, Lord, that you do speak to us, each and every one of us individually. Uh, from your words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and we've just finished uh, reflecting on the seven letters to the church uh, in chapters two and three, and now we're landing on uh, chapter four. And this is quite a transition, uh, and maybe feeling a bit abrupt as well, going from some very practical, to-the-point messages to the churches, and now to this vision uh, filled with things that are, that seems to be out of Harry Potter, you know. Uh, very fantastic at times, very confusing at times. Uh, it can feel like a rather abrupt transition, the switching of genres, if you will. But it really isn't, uh, and, and here's why. Uh, if chapters 2 and 3, the seven letter to the churches, were encouraging words for the church to persevere, to overcome, Uh, all the trials of this life, and finish the race. Chapters 4 and 5 are about what's at the finish line when you get through that race. After the exhortations to return, to repent, 
wake out of their self-sufficiency, their materialism, their conformity to their city, their lukewarmness, comes this call uh, to, to see or envision, right? Envision what the Christian hope is and ought to be. So from verse 1, uh, through a door that's standing open in heaven, right, uh, we were invited to catch a glimpse of what's behind that door. Because, guys, there's a door that's open to heaven. Don't you want to see what's behind it? Okay. Uh, and that's where our hope lies, and that's what John's vision shows us, the Christian hope that lies behind that door. And we'll address these three um, hopes specifically. Hope for our world, hope for our worship, and hope for the here and now. These three. Hope for our world, hope for our worship, and hope for the here and now. Okay? So first, uh, hope for our world. Uh, Verse 2 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Uh, the thing that we have to note here is, is the oneness of, of it all. There's one throne in one heaven occupied by one king. There's not a group of kings fighting over one throne. There's one who's seated. This is what God is showing the seven churches. In fact, it's the first thing he shows the seven churches, that at the end of the world, the world will be one, united under one king and one throne. This is also why we see in verse 4, around the one throne in the center were 24 lesser thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And commentators say the 24 elders represent the, the... elect people in both, the, in both the Old Testament and the New. The 12 tribes of Israel represented in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles represented in the New Testament. This represents all the elect people of God. They're all submitting to this one throne. Now, why is that hope for the world? Um, because, because of this. For there to be ultimate peace and harmony in the world, there has to be a oneness. Uh, meaning there has to be one throne in one country. So there are no longer wars fought over boundaries, borders, no elections and re-elections, no game of thrones, if you will. There has to be one king seated on one throne in one nation for there to be ultimate peace and harmony and unity in the world. And this is is an idea that is not just, it's not just an idea in, in, in our religious or Christian conception of heaven it's it's very much true in the secular conception of a utopia as well uh, think about what john lennon sings about in in the song imagine i mean people kind of take that to be the ultimate right secular hymn right john lennon's imagine because it says imagine there's no religion Ima- imagine there's no heaven there's no hell below us above us only sky but what else does it say imagine there's no countries what does that mean? That there's no countries. There's only one. There's only one country. Only one form of governance. Uh, even if, even if the, the intent of the message is to say, uh, no, we don't want any sort of governmental structure. That's your structure, 
right? You eradicate all other things and have that as your structure. It's the one form of governance that John Lennon likes. That's oneness. And then he also says, nothing to kill or die for. Nothing to kill or die for. Think about how sweeping a value judgment that is. He's, he's assuming that there can be this universal agreement on what is worth killing and dying for, what isn't worth killing and dying for. This unifying of this moral ethical code uh, that, that helps us make these value judgments of what's worth living for and dying for. That's oneness. So even if you distance yourself as far as you can from any religious lingo and religious hope for the world, you can't quite distance yourself from the concept of oneness. True hope for the world hinges on whether this oneness is achievable. True hope for the world hinges on this. And according to the vision in our passage today, the oneness is not just achievable, it has been achieved. The, the king sits right now on the throne in the kingdom that is to come. This is therefore, he says, what must take place at the end of verse 1. This is what must take place by necessity because he's, he's on the throne. And then it says in verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The jasper and carnelian could be referring to the the rarest, most precious stones during this time, and therefore John, it's John's attempt at describing the most, most majestic thing he's ever seen. Or another interpretation is, if you look at Exodus 28, you'll find that the high priests, their breastplate had 12 precious stones on them, the first one and the last one being Jasper and Carnelian. So this image could be describing Jesus not merely as a king, but as we see in the book of Hebrews, as a priestly king, a king who is also a priest, uh, and not just any priest, but like Jasper and Carnelian, the first and the last priest, the ultimate priest. The one who brings ultimate peace and stability to the world. I like that latter interpretation, not just because it sounds cooler, although it does sound cooler, uh, because it also makes sense of the next symbol of the rainbow that comes out. The rainbow that surrounds the throne. Where else do we see a rainbow? in the Bible that appears as a sign from heaven, right? Go back to Sunday school. When did you last see a rainbow? Well, in Genesis 9, after the great flood. God says to Noah, this rainbow is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. And he says the water sh never shall again become a flood to destroy. Okay. Now, this doesn't just mean that God won't send another flood to judge the world. If you look at the, the fuller context of Genesis, you find in Genesis chapter 1, from before, before the first day of creation, there was what? There was chaos. There was disorder. And what else was there? Water was there. Water was there. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. And this water, right before the first day of creation, wasn't this, this calm seas teeming with life, something you surf on and it's wonderful. It, it, it was destructive and chaotic. It was only on the second day that God drew the necessary boundaries that controlled that chaos, put a stop to that chaotic, destructive water, and then he put living creatures in it. It became something that sustains life, meaning without God, without his priestly intervention, his creative power, 
there would have been nothing but destructive waters all over the earth. There would have, nothing, there would have been nothing but Noah's flood. But it is the all-controlling hand of God and the power of God that says to the waters, you can only come this far, and you can no longer wreak havoc on the earth. That's what kept this water at bay and at peace. And so the absence of flood always meant the presence of God's power and his control. But when the people rejected God's presence, right, turns out they were also rejecting his controlling hand over the world, over the destructive and chaotic waters. And that's what Noah's flood was about. So what was a rainbow about? God's promise to never let go of his controlling hand over his creation again so that the chaotic, destructive waters will not touch you. Likewise here, at the end of the world, we don't see what was at the beginning of the world, formlessness, disorder, chaos, destructive waters, but a throne that's in control. And seated on the throne, there's someone who can calm the raging seas by the word of his power. Right? The one who says, be still, and there's an absolute calm. That's, that's the hope for the world. Who can control the chaos? It comes down to that. And the good news is, this God who sits on the throne, he's not only interested in saving his people, he's also deeply invested in redeeming his creation, his created world. The, the secular vision of the end of the world, uh, if you want to nerd out and, and Google some of these things, uh, you can look up theories like the big rip or the big crunch or the heat death of the universe. Uh, big rip says earth and humanity will slowly decay into radiation collapse in on itself and be ripped apart as the universe expands. Uh, the big crunch says the universe will shrink, cause stars, planets, entire galaxies to collide into each other and the universe would fall for all intents and purposes collapse in on itself. Everything will implode back into singularity. Or there's the heat death of the universe, the big freeze, right? The sun dies out and everything dies out. And, and these are not words of some uh, pessimistic, nihilistic philosopher. These are words of our most renowned scientists and cosmologists who all basically say the same thing. Uh, everyone, everything returns to chaos. They get destroyed in the end. That's the secular conception of what's behind the door, what's at the end of the world. It's literally what you get when you, when you get what John Lennon asked for. No heaven above us, above us only sky. You end up with the big rip and the big crunch and the heat death of the universe. If above us only sky, then ahead of us only death. Okay. The point is this. Uh, if there is even of the faintest echo in your heart that says, that can't be it. That can't be what's behind the door. That can't be the ultimate purpose of the universe, the purpose of why there's something rather than nothing. If there's even the faintest echo of that in your heart, you need to know that's not echoing anything secular, anything naturalistic. That's echoing something from the throne of heaven. You're echoing something divine and supernatural, utterly non-secular. You're echoing this voice from the throne saying, I will regain control and I will redeem my creation and I will bring peace and stability once and for all. All the power that could be chaotic and has been chaotic, even Satan's chaotic and destructive power will one day submit to my throne. Verse five seems to imply that, the flashes of lightning, 
rumbling, peals of thunder. Now they, they emanate from the throne, meaning it's all under his control. Even the powers that seem most out of control. I mean, who can control lightning and peals of thunder? God, God controls. And then ultimately there's surrounding his throne. We see in verse 6, a sea of glass like crystal. Utterly, perfectly calmed water. So still, so beautifully calm, it looks like glass. So beautiful, it shines like crystals, right? There's, there's not a big crush or a big rip. There's a big calm, a great calm over the waters. Why? Because of the one who sits on the throne. He's restoring the world. That's our hope for the world. If above us only sky, there's no hope for the world. If above us, a throne in heaven, we have all the hope for a new, new creation. All right. Second, there's also hope here for our worship. If you look at the second half of verse 6 where it says, around the throne, you begin to see uh, these descriptions of uh, four living creatures. And they're all like fantastic looking creatures. Uh, in short, most commentators agree that they symbolize all living animate things on earth. Um, you have a livestock in, in the ox. You have uh, land animal, wild animal, lion, you have a flying animal in the sky, eagle, and then you have the human face. So that's pretty much a comprehensive representation of all living things on earth. Now, the more important thing is what they're doing. Okay, Not what they look like, but what they're doing. And, and given what they're doing uh, is uh, what all of the creatures on the face of the planet are doing, this is pretty significant. And they're doing one thing. Right? This theme of oneness continues. Near the end of verse 8, it says... Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Okay? They, ref they repeat this refrain day and night, day and night. What, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? They're worshiping. Every living thing is worshiping God, saying, Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, before you think this is just some ancient version of the harp-playing, chubby, angelic babies with dimples um, that just sing all day, right? Float around the throne and sing all day, which is the caricature version of heaven. Um, here, here are a couple of things to keep in mind. For one, this is a symbolic vision, right? Uh, this is not like a literal snapshot, screenshot of the door behind heaven transported to us. This is a symbolic and apocalyptic vision. So the, uh, the picture has to be interpreted according to its genre as a figure of speech. There's going to be no day and night in heaven anyway. There's no sun or moon. That's a figure of speech. So uh, this repeating of day, day and night repeating of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty is not to be taken literally as if they're just robotically just going, going round and round like a broken record. Second, other passages in the Bible make, that, make this clear. We, we do a lot of other things in heaven. We feast in heaven. Uh, we walk with God in heaven. We will rule and reign in heaven. We will create and, and work and enjoy being in the city of God in heaven. So, so this can't be the only thing that we do in heaven. And, and if you look at the next verse, it tells us what worship really, really implies and entails. What they're really doing through their worship and through these words is giving glory 
and honor and thanks, right? That's worship. The true meaning of worship is not just saying a bunch of words day and night, but it's giving glory, honor, and thanks. That's the heavenly definition of worship. It's finding something worth glorying in, seeking something as your highest ideal, and then honoring it, giving it proper recognition, giving it the praise that it's due, and then feeling, as a result, this tremendous sense of gratitude welling up beside you just for having found that one thing. The one thing that you've been searching for your whole life, that's worship. Giving glory, giving honor, giving thanks. And here's the kicker, okay? We all worship. Whether it's this God who sits on the throne or someone or something else, we all worship this way. Even if the person who worships is not a religious person, we all worship something. Whether that something is a creator or something in creation, we all worship, right? The, the word the Bible uses for the alternative things we give our worship to is an idol, an idol. Uh, an idol is basically whatever we replace God with as our, as our glory, as the thing to honor, as the thing that deserves our gratitude. Uh, it's something we replace God as our highest ideal and our greatest pursuit in life. That's an idol. Um, it's the thing that we busy ourselves with more and concern ourselves with more than, than God and his will for our lives. Why would we do that? Why would we ever do that? Why would anyone give more attention, more work and effort, and pour more energy into something uh, than God because of this deep found founded belief in their heart that this thing will give their life more value and more meaning than God. If you have that, th that kind of a thing that, that, that gives you a sense of a deeper sense of gratification and meaning or a promise of these things, that's your idol, according to the Bible. And the, and the trouble with idols is this, it, it will never satisfy you. And it's rather deceptive. For one, it, it seems to promise you satisfaction a deep sense of fulfillment if you, if you search after this thing. But in the end, it only leaves you disappointed with a terrible end of the bargain. Like you, 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 you've paid a hefty price to acquire your idol, but in the end, all you get is disappointment and disillusionment. And then it, it also gives you this very deceptive illusion of being the one in control when it's really you being controlled yourself and usually with fear. And, and, and as you're controlled by that fear, as you feed it more, it, it grows. The fear grows. Um, think about what would happen, for example, if your idol was recognition from people, uh, acceptance, um, and popularity. That's your glory, and that's your honor. Um, that's what makes you feel grateful in life, right? Your, your hope is found in that, in that kind of recognition and acceptance. Will you ever be satisfied? Or will you only find fear, fear of people's rejection and disapproval? We know this all too well, right? Uh, idolizing people's uh, recognition and acceptance only leads you to you being controlled by people's opinions of you. And you, you'll pay a hefty price. You'll live for, you live for people-pleasing, perfectionism, workaholism, so that you will be approved and you think, because if, if I don't do this, if I don't obey this idol, I'll be punished by disapproval or rejection, and my life would not have value, my, my life would not have significance. But what do you get in return? The increasing of that fear. The more you feed that fear, the more the fear grows. If you, if you seek after security and stability, that's your hope of glory. 
and that's what you honor, that's what you obey, then you might not care so much about what people think about you, but you'll do whatever, pretty much whatever it takes to feel secure and stable, whether that's through money or through overworking or through sacrificing your health, your relationships. Um, and in a world where everything does break and fall apart, uh, the more you chase after security and stability, the more fearful you become of not having security and stability. This idea of, you know, if I just had this much, if I just paid this off, just acquired this, my life would be secure, my life would be stable, will only bring more of such demands into your life. So that you would just go after the next big thing that will bring you the next measure of security you need. The more you feed the fear, the more it grows. If you seek after certain pleasures and your hope is there, right? It's, it's, it's my good, fulfilled life rests in how much pleasure I experience in this life. You'll be literally controlled by it by becoming addicted to it. You don't control it. It controls you. And you, you pay whatever the cost you have to pay, right, to, to live this valuable life worth living. You can, whether that cost is sacrificing good character, sacrificing genuine loving relationships, you'll pay that price. Why? Because you got to have this. You got to have this to have worth and, and value in your life. And as you do so, it, it's a hefty price. As you, as you pay this price, it only demands more. All right, guys, bottom line is, how do you know you're worshiping an idol? You're never satisfied. You're only living in fear. You're crazy busy. And you're under control and not controlling anything. There's no joy. There's no gratitude. And there's no hope. Our experiences show us what Scripture has been teaching us all along. Worship the Lord your God. Love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is, your, this is the first and greatest command. And if you do this, everything falls into place. But if you miss this, first thing, you, you're your first and most basic human function. When you glory in something other than God. When you see glory and honor and thanks in something other than God, you, you go into a self-destructive pattern. Why? Because God has made us for himself. For our hearts to rest in his glory and to honor him and to give him thanks. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, it's an excellent um, soul-searching book for any of us who's feeling tired, exhausted, um, joyless, I recommend this book. He says, quote, when you finally realize this, that your idols, your worshiping cannot satisfy you, there are four things you can do. One, you can blame the things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones. That's a way of, he says, continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. Two, you can blame the world, and that's how you get hard and cynical and empty inside. Third, you can blame yourself and beat yourself up. That's a way of self-loathing and shame. And fourth, or you can reorient the entire focus your life, of your life on God. In other words, you can repent and come back to him. You can keep worshiping idols and, and turn into someone who blames, whether you know, that's blaming others, the world, or the self, or you can turn your entire focus of your life, your entire worship, on God. What will it be? And the good news is this. 
Okay, there's good news, guys. The good news is this invitation to turn your focus on God is being given to you on this very day through this very vision from heaven. Uh, this vision is like a it's like a wedding invitation or it's like a postcard from a friend inviting you to come and see where he lives. It's an image, but in an image, right, it paints a thousand words. It says everything that, that you need to hear. This is what you need, the one thing. This is the one throne, the one glory, one honor, one thanks that you need. This is why God is giving us this vision. This is why God gave this vision to the seven churches. This is what's at the finish line. This is your hope of acquiring this, your glory, your greatest glory and honor. As it says in Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, seated on the throne. This is our, our hope of restoring our broken worship. There's hope here for our broken worship. And therefore, lastly, there's hope for the here and now. Um, the words of the four living creatures in verse 8 is a reference to Isaiah 6. Uh, I'm sure many of you know that. Where the seraphim with six wings hovering over the throne of God saying the very same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, uh, but you know what Isaiah's reaction was? Remember what Isaiah's first reaction was when he saw that? What was it? Was it, Lord, I worship you. Lord, I, I adore you. Lord, I, I give you my everything. Well, no, what was his reaction? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. Meaning I am so unlike this holy, holy, holy God. I am a sinner. I am an idol worshiper. I am a spiritual adulterer who replaced God with counterfeit gods. I, I am ruined. I am ruined. But was he ruined? No. Why not? Uh, Isaiah sees a seraphim flying towards him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the altar, the altar where a substitute sacrifice would have been made. And with that coal, he touches Isaiah's mouth and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And that doesn't ruin Isaiah or remove Isaiah from God's presence. It makes him stand before the throne and say, Here I am. Uh, in verse 10 of our passage today, you see the 24 elders. They, they all fall down before Jesus and his throne and worship him. None of them are saying, woe is me for I am ruined. Why not? How are they able to stand before God just as they are? As, as Isaiah did. And if you look at chapter 5 later on, just immediately after this, it says in verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. For what? Slain for what? Slain for the altar. Slain on the cross. How were they able to stand there? These elders, the people of God, the elect of God, the same reason Isaiah was able to stand, by relying on a substitute sacrifice on their behalf, the sacrifice of a lamb, the lamb who was slain. It's the king who is also the high priest with Jasper and Carnelian on his breastplate. The judge who became the judged. The guiltless who became guilty. The, the, the God who, who brought order and, 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 
and peace to destruction, himself being destroyed. Where? On the cross. This is our God who sits on the throne. When all the, the idols are demanding everything from us, here's the one God laying down everything for us to win us over, to win our worship, so that we would worship him, we would praise him. And, and that's not so that he would go on some ego trip. It's so that our hearts would finally be healed and be satisfied and we finally rest. Uh, there's nothing more loving than this, than to point our attention to what could ultimately satisfy us and to tell us, fixate on that, right? glory in that, honor that, and gratitude, thanksgiving will well out of you. This is the Christian hope. It's when we lean on and rely on the substitute sacrifice of the Lamb, and by his blood and through his blood, we stand before the throne of God and once again say, here I am, Lord. And I cast, like the elders, I cast my crowns before you. Whatever I treasure more than you, I cast them before you. And realizing now, you are the greatest treasure. This gives us hope in the here and now. This gives us hope to be freed from our, our weary, tired, exhaustive chase after idols. And finally, uh, when you look at Isaiah, Isaiah 6, you'll find he doesn't just say, uh, here I am. He says, here I am, send me. Send me. He walks away with a mission, mission to make God's glory known on the earth. That's something the 24 elders here in the vision are not saying, is it? Send me. They're in God's presence, but they're not saying send me. There's nowhere to send them anymore. There's no mission anymore in heaven. Uh, John Piper put it this way, mission exists where worship doesn't. Mission exists where worship doesn't. And in heaven, there's only worship. Only the glory in the Lord, the holy, holy, holy Lord Almighty. Heaven is where mission ends. Until then, as we live on the earth, this in-between, the already not yet we are to live missionally. We are to say, here I am, but not stopping there. We are to say, here I am, send me. And we have hope that this mission will succeed because the king is on the throne. This is our hope for the here and now as well, to be missional, to live missionally, not successfully, not capably, not securely or safely or stably, missionally. Uh, as husband and wives, you know, what, what will ruin our marriages if we, if we strive to be successful in our marriages, comparing our marriages to other marriages and defining success according to our culture? What will lead our marriage to thrive would be to live missionally in our marriage. How can we be missional through our marriage? Parents, uh, let's not try to be successful in our parenting. That's what ruins us. That's what ruins me when I try to be successful as a father. Let's be missional towards our children. Students, be missional on campus. Teachers, be missional towards your students and know that you are not defined by your performance. Your worth is not found in your performance. Your worth is secure at the throne of God in heaven. So live now for his mission to make his glory known through all the things that you, you do. Uh, from time to time when you feel like you're too busy, you're too tired, you're losing your grip on your gratitude, your hope in God, uh, chances are that's because of an idol that has seeped into your heart and is residing in your heart. 
Discern what that is, guys. Discern your idol prayerfully and, and turn from it. Repent of your idols. And the best way to do that is by delighting yourself in God through worship, through going to the Word of God, through your fellowship, through your service for His kingdom, so that you will be reminded, I already have my glory, and I don't have to busy myself seeking after one. My glory is Christ in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we pray uh, you help us uh, that we would believe this gospel, this good news of your son, and that we would be able to be radically devoted to the throne as the 24 elders here, able to cast our crowns before this one crown, before this one glory, let all other glories seem small, insignificant. Uh, Lord, free us from our search of glory in our vocation, our relationships, our possessions, so that we will find the one true glory that's now seated at the throne. And as we fix our eyes on him, may we, may we say, as the elders do, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you made us, and for you we exist. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.